The scripture reading today is taken from John 15. It's on page 901 in your pew Bibles. It's John 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of God. that working? There we go. Whoa. That works. Is there, uh, are we good? All right. Um, I don't have the opportunity to take the time to speak with you about our appreciation for the opportunity to be here, the opportunity to love and serve alongside of you and to be, I hope, a blessing uh, to you. And we're, we're just grateful for the opportunity. And it's, uh, I just have to jump in here, and you got to trust me that I know Jesus, and that's all that really matters, right? We don't know each other. I don't know you as a church, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ as we know Him, and in that, there is, there is so much unity without even necessarily a knowledge of one another. I find this as I travel throughout the world. There are people that I meet for the first time. I'm closer to them immediately than I am to my neighbors that I've been next to for years because we know Christ. 
And that's, that's the key. And we're thankful for that opportunity to, to rejoice in that together today. And I invite you to this wonderful passage. I, I think you're working through this as a church, through John, so we come to chapter 15 today. And what happens next? You're watching a drama on TV and a person is gravely wounded or injured in some way. What's the next scene? It seems invariable. Somebody gets over that person, hovering over and says what? Stay with me. Have you heard this? It is, it's, it's happened so often. I've asked a, a paramedic, is this really a thing? That, that people actually get, when, when somebody's really been shot or really been hurt in a car accident, do people get over and stay, say, stay with me? Sometimes, maybe in the drama, it's just, just don't die. I don't want you to die. But other times, I guess there is actually some medical reasons why keeping the person conscious is actually helpful to them and to their long-term health. So we say, stay with me. Or maybe to change the scene a little bit, a scene that I saw not long ago, this very huge, unathletic father. And he was apparently late for a flight, working through a clogged airport terminal hallway, and he was running, or what approximated running, the best that he could, and he's carrying a daughter. This is a large man, and his daughter was really large for her size, and he's struggling to carry her, struggling to run toward his flight. He's got maybe a nine-year-old boy behind, about as unathletic as his father, and, his, and what's the dad say to him as he's running, weaving between people? He says what? Stick with me. Stick with, like, don't get separated from me. I can't pay attention to you to get this done. Just stay here right with me. I believe that providentially coming to John chapter 15 today, that Jesus has brought us to this place before this text to say to us, stay with me. Stick with me. It's vital that you know who I am and that you stay in fellowship with me. The risen Christ bringing us to this place centers this teaching in chapter 15 around two imperatives. And you can kind of see them highlighted here in yellow. You don't need to read the text as such, but you just see these two places for us. And know that the text hinges on these two imperatives. Verse 4, he says, abide with me. And verse 9, abide in my love. Abide with me, abide in my love. And everything else kind of is centered around these two imperatives. The only two in the passage. The problem with abide is, do you use that word every day? I mean, what does abide mean? I say, my beautiful wife Beth is with me here and I abide with her in love. If I said that to you as I met you, you'd be like, well, that's really weird. What... (laughs) Do you, do you speak like that? I abide in her love. She abides in my love. I mean, we don't really use that phrase. It's a little strange to us. I'm trying to help us move there a little bit with the idea of sticking with someone. Staying with someone. But even that really doesn't go deep enough. There's more to it. And Jesus uses this picture of the vine and the branches and the fruit that those branches bear in this metaphor to help us understand something that goes even far more deeply than just staying with or sticking with someone. But that, in a sense, while we don't use the word abide, we can at least get closer to it that way, but he takes us closer yet 
by saying it's something like the relationship of a branch with a vine. The stock of that grapevine and the branches drawing life from it. This now, as you've worked your way through the book of John, is the last I am statement in the book of John. We have the bread of life in chapter 6. He says that I am the light of the world in chapter 8 and 9. He says that I'm the door of the sheep in chapter 10. I'm the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. The way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And now, chapter 15, I am the true vine. We find that there in verse 1. Let's just set the context quickly again. The context is that this is the night, the very night of Jesus' betrayal. And there is intense preparation for the disciples for His departure. They've left the upper room now as we come to chapter 15. You see at the end of chapter 14, that phrase, let us go from here. Apparently they're leaving the upper room and they're going to head across that Cadrone Creek and up the hill opposite Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane, this olive grove where Jesus will gather with the disciples for this last time. We're talking intensity here. This is really serious time as he teaches them the last things he's going to be able to teach them. So there's kind of long-term prep going on here as, as, as he approaches his ascension and his departure. And there's sort of the short-term prep going on as this very night their faith is going to be shaken. Will they stay with Jesus? Will they stick with Him to the end? I want to talk to you about this, he says. I am the vine and you are the branches. So it's this intense scene that forms the backdrop of the metaphor that he employs arranging around these two imperatives. We need to start first of all by grasping the metaphor's focus. We must abide in Christ. Verse 1, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine. We don't uh, necessarily always see grapes growing. For us, they come in the grocery store, right? There's in that uh, refrigerated section. We can go ahead to the next slide there. But as we kind of get a sense of how it looks, where it's at, uh, this is what he's saying is to, to get this image. Now for them, that would have been everywhere, and it would have been very obvious to them when he says, I'm the stock, or I'm the vine, I'm that thing coming up out of the ground that feeds life to the branches that then bear the grape fruit. But I'm the true vine. That's not coming out of nowhere, and it's not simply just connection to his time and culture, but the grapevine was a national image of Israel. And so when he speaks about the grapevine... He is looking, they would have thought very quickly, the Old Testament context where it invariably speaks of Israel in fairly negative terms. Israel fails as the grapevine. He says here then in a very radical claim, I am the true vine. The people of God are no longer identified as those united with the nation of Israel, but now the people of God are identified with those who relate to me. Those who stick with me. Those who are united with me. He and He alone is the life-giving vine. His Father, verse 1, is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. What's the branch? 
as he thinks of it, what, what, what is he talking about? The branch is not Israel, as some would think, I don't think, but rather individuals in our relationship with Christ. And what does it mean to bear fruit? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Fruit is what a life is that is vitally related to Jesus Christ. And I think it's everything that a life is that's vitally related to Jesus Christ. It's the way our life unfolds. It's who we are at the depths of our being. It's what we say. It's what we do. It's who we are in our relationship with Jesus. That fruit is to be born by the branch. A person who has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, demonstrates this reality by displaying, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced in his or her life, in a Christ-like life. He says here that those who do not bear fruit, he takes away. What does it mean to take away? Uh, What is that speaking of? It's to cut off the vine. The vine is clipped off of the grapevine, or the branch is clipped off the grapevine, and takes it away is a word of judgment. It's a word of separation. Now, if you're thinking, well, there's the grapevine, it really seems like he's saying here that those who don't bear fruit lose their salvation. They're cut off the vine and that's it. They once were rightly related to the life of Christ and now they've lost that. It can be read that way and many would read it that way, but it really overreads the metaphor to take it this way. Because think about it, can a branch be anything other but on the vine. I mean, the the metaphor falls apart somewhere on some level, and it it has to be on the vine to even be talked about in this way. And of course, there's so many other indicators in John 6 and John 10 that that's not what Jesus is saying. But I think, what does it mean that someone is taken away, someone's clipped off, they don't bear fruit, and they are separated from Christ? I think exhibit A is Judas. Exhibit A is the man who's been eating supper with them that night and left the room and went away to the other side and betrayed Christ. I think there is Exhibit A as to what it means to be taken off, to not endure. And there are many indicators in the New Testament of this necessity to watch ourselves along these lines. Do I remain in the vine? Am I connected to Christ in this way? In contrast are those who do not, or who rather, who do bear fruit. We see here in verse 2. Every branch, what happens with them? The branches, the individuals in their relationship with Christ that do bear fruit, that bear the characteristic life in Christ, when that is the case, what happens? He prunes that it may bear more fruit. What does prune mean? There's some pictures on contemporary setting here of pruning grapes. It's done in the winter, particularly in Israel, uh, here perhaps in the early spring sometimes, but in that time just clipping off the excess branches so that they grow better fruit. The pruning process takes place. And I think it's metaphorical of trials and suffering. That there is a discipline that comes into the life of one who bears such fruit. Branches that abide then, branches that stay with the vine, are Christians who enjoy saving union with Jesus and they bear witness to that fact by Christ-like character. 
And Christians who bear such fruit in their lives experience then trials and suffering that deepens their faith and allows them to demonstrate more fruit in the days to come. So I think we need to dismiss the fairly common idea that saving faith in Jesus is proven by a religious event. There's some experience in my life that proves that I'm a Christian. I pray to prayer, and we hear commonly, and I I think there's good, and we want to recognize the good in it, but you hear commonly people say, I know that I'm a believer. How do you know? Because one day, such and such a year, I asked Jesus into my heart. Whatever that means to that individual, and it could be variously interpreted, that's not where Jesus points us. You know that you're abiding in the vine if you ask Jesus into your heart. He points us rather to the fruit of our life. Now you may have had such an experience. It may have been a Damascus Road experience. As the Apostle Paul talks often about his conversion, the uniqueness of that. But that's not where Christ points us to discern whether we're in the vine that we had some religious experience. Another false idea that I think is dismissed here right out of the gate is that believers who walk in obedience with Christ are rewarded with an easy life. I've never heard a Christian or even a false prophet say those words, easy life. It'll come in a different package. God will bless your life. You will prosper. You will succeed. They'll use language like that, but what they're really saying is there won't be any pruning. And we have pastors today, particularly, uh, if you turn on the television, you'll find them there without looking very hard at all, and they'll be telling you this, that if you do the right things, God will take all the problems away. He'll make your life smooth and easy and wealthy and prosperous. Jesus says, you live for me, you trust me, I'm going to get my pruners out. There's going to be trials. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulty. Because that's how a grapevine produces more. That's how we bear more fruit. So if you belong to me, these two things are true. There is spiritual fruit in your life that is evidence that you're related to me and you can point to trials and suffering that are taking place that will deepen your faith. By the way, quick time out. If you're sitting there going, I look at my life and it's really easy. I've had individuals come to me after sermons such as this and say, I'm really worried because I'm not suffering. I'm not having trials. Generally, every one of those look a whole lot younger than me. And I've said to more than one, I remember specifically this young man in our church, very sincere man, wanted to grow in Christ, wanted, and he was just worried. Why is God not pruning anything? I just said, wait. <laughs> he will. And God did. And that man was not more than a couple of years from some very serious trials. And his faith has deepened and grown through those trials. So if you're there, just wait. The Lord will do this in His good grace to us. Verse 3, already He says as He now assures them, because don't you start to say, am I in the vine? He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is clean, connect to 1310, 
you are clean, he says to the disciples, but not every one of you, speaking of whom? Of Judas. Judas is not clean. The rest of you are clean. And if I could push the metaphor a little bit, you're nicely linked into the vine. You're cleanly connected to the vine in a sense. And it's because of my word. You have responded to my word. You have been uh, rescued by it, redeemed by it. And in that response to the word, there is a transformation that's taking place in your life. You are clean. You are abiding, I think is another way of saying it. Indeed, the, there's, there's a play on words going on here in the Greek that indicates a connection there. So, what are the disciples, what are we to do with the truth of this metaphor? Verse 4, here it is, abide in me. And it's a command, abide in me and I in you. I am indeed abiding in you as well. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Stick with me. You need me. You can't do anything apart from me, in a right way of saying it. Now obviously the metaphor gets stretched a little out of shape here, doesn't it? Branches are held responsible for remaining in the vine. It's just a metaphor. It's just an illustration. Don't take it too far, but... One of the evidences, perhaps, that we're not remaining in the vine, or one of the evidences that we're not doing so joyfully, at least, is that when we say, look at this idea, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet we try all the time, don't we? You can do nothing apart from me, Jesus says, and yet we try it. And one of the evidences that we try it is the frustration in our life. Some of us deal with that more than others just by way of personality, but I think on some level, in some way, do we not all face this? I just get frustrated with life. It doesn't work. Even good things don't work right. That frustration is often an evidence of self-dependence in my life. I think a second major way is prayerlessness. Jesus says, without me you can do nothing, and yet, We don't pray. We don't bring matters to Him in prayer and lay them out and work through them prayerfully. That can happen for a person. That can happen for a church. A church can get so busy about the good things that it's doing, but it's really not dependent on Christ. And the evidence is there's not much prayer happening. We're not seeking His face, knowing without Him we can do nothing. And then if there's feelings of despair in our Christian life, perhaps sometimes that's actually sanctifying. When we realize we can do nothing without Him, we need to sense those moments of despair at times because it draws us back to Him. And usually the circumstances of life that lead to that despair are the pruning that hurts, but that brings us back to dependence upon Him. Jesus now considers the opposite response in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me. So we're to abide in him. We're to be with him, united to him. But if anyone does not abide in him, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. It's a frightening picture. Clippings from the grapevines are useless. The only proper end is to burn them so that they don't gather, but they really don't even create much warmth. 
They just need to be displaced, taken away, burned up. And I think this is indeed a reference to the judgment of those who have no life-giving faith connection to Christ. Back to the one who does abide, he flips back and forth, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If we walk in fellowship with Christ, if we are responding to His teaching in our lives, we are empowered to ask God whatever we desire and He will do it. I even raised my voice when I said that. We want to kind of whisper that point because really? It's not how my prayer life works. Well, let's think about it a bit. I mean, we don't, nobody here is so dense as to think Jesus is saying, I'm the genie in the bottle, you just rub me and you get whatever lust, desire you have and it's all fulfilled. Of course not. But what this verse does show us is how vital prayer is for the genuine believer. I'm walking in fellowship with Christ, His desires are my desires, and the way that I work those desires out in the world I live in is by walking in prayer with Him. And when my desires are His desires, we are truly walking in fellowship and accomplishing good in this world for His name. We pour out our prayers for His glory and thus participate in the works in this world that He's doing, as we have been doing as a church here today. Praying for the reach of the Gospel in the lives of others. Praying for the various matters that have been brought before the Lord's throne here today. We are laboring with Him in prayer. We're asking in the name of Jesus to do the things we know He wants done. Our prayers become, in a sense then, a holy defiance of the world that is. And it's a holy defiance of the world that is in light of the world we know God has promised for His glory and the ultimate good of His people. This is where we want to continue to tag into what is it that God wants? What are His promises? What is He accomplishing in this world? And to get past our little lives and our little stories with all of their trouble and trial and to lift higher to the grander accomplishment of the risen Christ. He's expressed enough of what that is for us to pray to that end and to join Him in those prayers of accomplishment. And notice the important connection between prayer and fruit that we find here in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God's desires for His people are to bear much spiritual fruit. He wants spiritual fruit to be hanging all over your life. That's what He wants. He wants to see in your life habits that lead to holiness. Yes, He does want to see the fruit of witness and people coming to know Christ. I don't think that's all that this is about as some have sought to turn it that way. But certainly that. He wants to see service, sacrifice for others, characteristic fruits of the Spirit. He longs to see in your life you meeting Him at His throne. Bringing to Him those requests that accord with His joy and His love because they're founded deep within your soul. He wants that for you, Christian. We exist to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. God simply wants us to realize that joy. He longs for us to walk in such fellowship with Him 
that we sense it. And I wonder, I, I think we just have to ask the question, is this what I want? Is this what I want to walk in close fellowship with Christ so that I am praying with Him to accomplish His work against the darkness and this world until I meet Him in glory? Do I really want that? Or would I be pretty happy with a comfortable house, a nice ride, and some really grand vacation plans? Sometimes I think we're just satisfied with that. And the danger is whether or not we're really abiding in Christ when we think about the things of this world and say, I'm satisfied with that. May God put in our hearts, each one of us, a holy dissatisfaction. That I am not comfortable where I am. I want to bear much fruit for Christ. This is His longing for us. Living out a zealous yes is one way that we prove that we are His disciples. Now we notice here, if we could move the slide forward there, you probably got the images of those guys burned into your brain here long enough. So We notice subtle shift here at verse 9. And that is an emphasis now you'll see in the text that flows through the word love. Verses 1-8, through did you hear any reference to love? I don't remember, but not in the text. Not a single use of the word love in verses 1 through 8. But in verses 9 through 17, we find eight times in verses 9 through 13. And then again, a closing thought on love in verse 17. So he seems to be subtly moving in that direction. And I think there's, it speaks of the genuine union with Jesus, pointing to an ethical display of the love that we have then for God and for others. So secondly then, expressing the metaphor's ethic, we must abide in Christ's love. Verses 9-11 through 11 speak of the love and relationship with the triune God. Notice that there, verse 9. It's really difficult to know where this text breaks, but many would see it here at verse 9. I think there's reasons for that because of the emphasis on love. But notice verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in me, general, as we understand the metaphor. Now, let's get really specific. This means abide in love. Love in relationship with me, first of all, as I abide in my Father. Verse 9. That's a stunning command. It encourages us to join the communion of the triune God. The Father loves the Son eternally. Now, says Jesus to His disciples, I want you to join into that triune love that predates history. Father, Son, and Spirit through all eternity, walking in holy love, I invite you into that relationship as my child. It seems almost preposterous to extend such an invitation to fallen souls. But the sanctifying work of the Spirit continues to transform us into this fellowship in increasing ways. It makes it, can I say it kind of crassly, more and more appropriate all the time. Now we fall infinitely short of the holiness of God, but as I'm fellowshipping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in my humanity, in my sin, God's sanctifying power is making that more and more appropriate 
until I come to see him as he is and glorified and delivered from sin forever. That's the process we're into. That's the invitation that is here. It's deeper than words can really convey. If, verse 10, you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So it gets kind of practical here. What does it mean to abide in the love of the triune being? What it means is you tag into the way that the eternal Son relates to the Father. What was the nature of Jesus' love for the Father? One characteristic was submission and obedience, which we see on earth displayed so clearly. We do not secure God's love by our obedience. Rather, our love for Jesus is displayed in our obedience. And is the response then drudgery? Dutiful obligation? I have to do what Jesus tells me to do? Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is what He longs for. I want you to bear much fruit. I want you in the fruit-bearing process to join in fellowship with Me for the joy of your soul forever. There's a subtle shift now to the importance of love for one another um, at verse 12 as we love not only Jesus, yes, but also love for those for whom Jesus died lovingly and sacrificially. We see that in the second point, love in relationship to God's people. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is my commandment. I want you then to love one another. If you say, well, where's that kind of come out for left field? That's really obvious. The love between Father, Son, and Spirit spills out into a love for fallen people, which then, if we're abiding with Jesus, is going to spill out of our lives in love for one another as God's people. We're united in His love. And I think Jesus here in verse 13 hints at the sacrifice that He's going to make in a matter of hours. When he says here, greater love is no one than someone lay down life for his friends. He's going to do that here in a matter of hours. But on the point of friends, he's saying you are my friends. That is, you are my partners. I'm welcoming you into that kind of fellowship. And the way that I send you out as my slaves, yes, but far more as my partners and friends, is to pour out your love for one another to other brothers and sisters in Christ to spend yourself for their good. I call you to this end. It's not obey me and I'll make you my friends. But obey me and you will demonstrate that you are my friends, that you are on the same mission that I was on. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. He's not lost sight of the earlier that night in John 13 as he washes the disciples' feet. So serve one another. We are servants of one another. We are servants of Christ. But in this context, what he's, what's he saying? I'm partnering with you as you partner with me. I'm, 
you are serving me, but I'm talking to you about how to relate to one another. But this is deep stuff, and we could take a long time to think through it, how the love of Christ flowing to me means that my love is to flow to one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus. But think of the privilege that is ours. If we can just say it this way, Jesus calling us to deep communion with Him that naturally flows in deep communion with His people. And here we see again the responsibilities that we have as a church, that we have as believers in Christ. It may not always feel like it, but when you live in love towards your brothers and sisters in this church, in our church, in whatever church you might be from here today, when you do that with those particularly, those with whom you have covenanted, when you do that, you serve in direct partnership with Jesus Christ. If He was around here, if He was with us, walking with us every day, we know we'd be blessed. We know His life would be a fragrance on ours and would be transformative to us. Jesus is doing that work through you and me as we, in our failed capacities, seek to love one another and help one another grow in Christ. You did not choose me, he reminds them in verse 16. Closes with this, uh, he places this call upon our lives, not we placing it upon ourselves. You, verse 16, did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. There's an interesting twist. You're to abide in the vine, now the fruit abides, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It seems that as we get frustrated with the failures of our own lives, that really in some respect we should always think of it as a failure of prayer. I am not asking, I am not seeking, and I'm not finding, as I'm not praying. He calls us to pray to this end, reprising the three themes like a finale of a symphony of fruit and abiding in prayer. But he also adds that idea that I've chosen you and what hope there is in that. Is it, do we not choose Jesus? He only chooses us? I think there's a sense in which, of course, we choose Christ. Our our will, our faith is pointed toward him. We're really engaged in this. He doesn't hit us like robots and turn the switch and we come on. We do choose Christ. We exercise our will in that direction. But the Scriptures always point it first with Jesus. He chooses His people. He is always the initiator. And the reason why we respond to Him. And it is true with the disciples as it is true with us. He has chosen us. And in that is great hope. These things, he says as he rounds it off, I've commanded you that you will love one another. The love of God is not a centripetal force. Centripetal force. Don't say that every day, do you? It's not a centripetal force pulling inward and isolating itself. The love of God is a centrifugal force that's moving outward, pulling outward, pulsating out to draw all into its orb that it possibly can. There is here to be in this church a receptive love that the world knows nothing about. 
It's, it's a drawing in. You're a person made in the image of God. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. We invite you into this circle of love. We draw you in. We want you in. Well, it's, I mean, don't you have your friends? Don't you have your clique? Are, are, aren't there parties, political parties or the like in this church? Things that separate and distinguish? No, not here. Not here. Well, maybe. <laughs> but we draw you in. We pull you in because that's what the love of God does. It draws in. It, bring, it, it seeks to capture. Let me just ask two questions. Does this really matter? I'm asking it for you. I don't know who I'm talking to here, but you might be saying, does this really matter? Why do I have to identify my life with Jesus? I like running my own show. I like being the captain of my own fate. Let me say first, you aren't the captain of your own fate. It's a delusion to think that you are. As we learn from Scripture and its revelation, we have fallen away from God from the very start of our human history in Eden, separated from the life of God. And there is a genuine warning here that if you are separated from Me, if you don't abide in the vine, if you are not rightly rooted to Christ, there will be a separation from Him forever. There will be a judgment that comes. And that might make you uncomfortable. I say, are you threatening me with hell? I'd say no, but Jesus is. It's not a threat to try to get you scared to do something. It's the reality of warning. That he's saying, if you don't abide in me, you will be cut off. And you will be left for the fire. In the sense that eternal separation from Him in eternity is a genuine threat to our eternal souls, and Christ has spoken the truth. Amazing reality, amazing historical truth. I understand, I haven't read the paper, but I've read that it exists. Karl Marx wrote a graduation thesis on this passage. And the title of his development of John 15 included the idea of the absolute necessity of remaining with Christ. He came to a place in his life, I don't know the story, I don't know where he crossed that line, but he came to a place in his life where he said, I don't believe this at all. I don't need Jesus. And he was cut off in a sense, and he is in a Christless eternity today. You don't want Jesus here, you won't get him in eternity. And that's where Marx took his life. Where will you take yours? It's a real threat to our souls to be separated from Christ. It's an eternal threat to our souls. And I would plead with you to come to the reality that Jesus' death was in the place of sinners. That He paid the price of sin for the forgiveness of the sinner. And that He rose from the dead and lives today. And that we can abide with Him today. There can be a sense of security in that. There can be a sense of forgiveness in that. There can be a sense of joy in that that you are seeking for in all the wrong places. Jesus is that answer. Stick with Him. Come to Him. It's a gift of life.
But the second question I'd ask is, how do I know I'm abiding in Christ if I have come to Him as Savior? How do I know, I think? How do I know that I'm not going to fall away? But what abiding does not look like is certainly showing up to church on Sunday morning and skipping out and running back to your life and never thinking about Jesus again. It's not a good sign of abiding in Him. There was a a woman that I knew some time ago that was living in horrific sin. She was pretty much breaking every command of Christ, every one of the Ten Commandments in her life, and that was her life. That was her style, the way she lived. I could not see fruit from what I, my advantage, and she assured me that all was well because as a little girl she prayed a prayer. Having prayed that prayer, she'd been taught by her parents all of her life. It was a ticket in her back pocket to go to heaven because she prayed that prayer and she could live any way that she wanted. That's not what it looks like to abide with Christ. I question that very thoroughly. She was very offended. Later she came through many years and many, many sorrows to say, you were right. It's not just an experience. It's a relationship. Is that relationship evident? From those who see you, they are not going to find a perfect Christian. John covers that in 1 John, doesn't he? We will sin. We do fall short. We are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. They're not going to find a perfect Christian, but do they see in your life the fruits of the life of Jesus? Do they see a desire to live for Him in that way? We're not looking for angelic perfection, but we are saying, and here's our hope again, that without Him we can do nothing. I sense that. I know that. But He's chosen me. Jesus reaches to us in grace, in a decisive grace that draws us into His life, and that life then is to be flowing from our lives, which may mean in the moment that there's lethargy that you've got to fight through. It may mean that there's some specific sin that you've got to fight and turn from and destroy in your life by the grace of God. It may mean that there's just a confidence here. And I pray by God's grace that as this church sings, as this church responds, that there's a joy in your heart. I'm abiding in Christ because He has chosen me, because His life flows through me. I have the privilege to bear the fruits of the Spirit in radical distinction from what my flesh wants, from the way that I lived apart from Christ or from the way that I would live if I had lived a full life apart from Christ. Our trust in the Gospel, our obedience to His Word, our life of prayer, our love for the saints, a Godward life of joy in Him is abiding in Christ. And it is a source of joy in our lives. So as you gather as a church around the Lord's table, this is a testament always to your loving communion with Christ and His people. May it always be that, and may it be a source of joy joy to Trinity Community Church by God's grace. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for this life-giving word 
and pray that we would cling to it and love Christ with all of our heart, that there would be a desire in the heart of your people right now to love him more, to love him faithfully. And we pray, Father, that you would work in the life of anyone who knows not Christ and draw that soul to the life of Jesus today. Everything's at stake. May they not miss that. May they not miss that in the smiles that they see here and the friendship that's extended to them. May they see the gravity of this call of Jesus. But may we all see the joy of it and celebrate it together as your people. Through Christ we pray.